I'd suggest you have that passage open if you've got it, otherwise that's fine too. So we're looking at a passage from Paul's letter to the Christians in Ephesus. In the section before the one Bindi read to us just now, Paul's acknowledged and encouraged these Christians in their faith and their testimony to Jesus. But as in all things, Paul goes on and puts the focus not on these Christians, but who it is we follow. Faith is good, but who the faith is in, that is the message worth remembering. And the peace, the riches and the grace that we find in knowing Christ. Now in today's reading, Paul goes on and highlights that as God brought Jesus from death to life, so we also are raised to a newness of life, so that now we stand apart from the present world. How did this come about? Who's responsible for the hope and life we have today? Paul reminds us that in the past we were a people busy satisfying ourselves. We did the things that satisfied our priorities, our lusts, the things that made us feel good. We were following the ways of the world, the ways of the ruler of the air, and all of these things made us alien to God. Paul also reminds us that even when we were like this and dead to him, before we could even comprehend the possibility, God made the way because of his great love for us. God's love is all that matters to our future. His love and its expression in the work of Jesus is what has raised us from death to life. His ongoing daily love in our lives is what makes enduring the challenges and difficulties of life possible. Because of his great love for us. Let's just sit with those words today. But what do we understand about God's love? How do we understand what Paul is talking about, both in our heads and in our hearts? Has knowing God's love made a deep change to our self-awareness, to our sense of guilt, to our sense of daily rest, to our ability to forgive others in a real way? Do we see ourselves as God's masterpiece as a consequence of his love and actions, or do we see ourselves as something less significant? If that's the case, then maybe our ongoing doubts, our struggles, our disappointments come about because we just don't get what it means to have received his great love. Maybe we've got weak or watered-down ideas of the sort of love God holds for us. And those are what are tying us up. So let's pray. Father, your word makes it very clear to us that incomplete ideas lead to incomplete lives. And we pray that as we consider what Paul is saying to these Christians so long ago, that the words are still irrelevant to helping us understand what it means to have received his great love. To live in that, not just in the past, but today and in the future. 
So we pray for that understanding through this time today. Amen. God loves you. You've probably heard it lots of times, maybe in Sunday school, maybe listening to some Christian song, or maybe you've heard it here many times. But what has it ever meant to you personally? Is this love? I love the dog. We love ice cream. We love watching the cricket. We love our pets. We love our children. And our children can really love tomato sauce. (laughs) Often people today talk about making love. A modern dictionary has 28, 28 different meanings for love. Which one is God acting out and Paul talking about? Even in New Testament times, there were a few key words used to describe love. While some aren't used in scripture, that doesn't prevent us from drifting into those understandings and so missing the point of God's love. It's very revealing when we look at scripture and compare the ideas we have of God's love for us and our love for him and for our neighbour. Scripture singles out one and only one type of love. I don't know if you can see that clearly. But they're the four words relevant to the language the New Testament is written in. The first word they used was philia, brotherly love. We often have ideas of a familial or brotherly affection when it comes to how God sees us and we should see others. The sort of siblings, the love that siblings within a family or the love that really close friends share, a love of commitment and reliability. This isn't just an emotional type of love. It involves practical care and concern. And we often see God being there in our upset, in our confusion, to support us as we need at those times and the challenge for us to support others. But this is not the love that Paul talks about and this is not the love that God shows us. Then there's the easiest sort of love, the love that so often gets mixed up into our faith. It's called eros love, but it isn't about sex. It's about a love that makes us feel good. This is the love that has me and my priorities at the centre of happiness. This is the love we give depending on how much love we receive. Eros is a consumer love. Eros is a wanting to have love. Eros is the love that has us wanting to feel better because people treat us nice or respond to what we're doing for them. Eros is a sort of transactional love that we've all experienced in our relationships and sometimes in our deeper friendships, the love that can dry up so very quickly when problems arise. The love that depends on how good you have been in a relationship and that's how it crosses over into our faith. How easily we slide into this 
We don't read enough Bible and we feel as if God has left us. We enjoy our time of worship and we feel that God is closer. Friends, this is the Eros love in action, in our faith. And again, this word is never used to describe the love of God or the life of a Christian. When Jesus and the apostles talked about love, especially today in the passage to the Ephesians, they consistently used a different word, agape. Agape is often translated simply as just self-sacrificing love. But it's a lot more than that. I don't know about you, but I've been around people thinking they were showing sacrificial love, even when they're rolling their eyes at the person they're showing this love to. In fact, self-sacrifice can, be, can also be the outcome of Eros love. I self-sacrifice so that will make me feel spiritual and valued, let alone whether the, whether the person responds. I feel more spiritual. Sometimes acting in self-sacrifice ends up being for me. You can see that, can't you? Yes? Folks, agape, excuse me, agape is about investing into another's life to their betterment, even when it costs me a lot. But I don't count the cost. It's about one-way giving with a generosity of spirit without any sense of repayment or debt. It is me making someone else richer, stronger, safer, simply because they will be safer, happier and better for my investment. Agape is not primarily about emotional love. It's about an investing love. Not because the other person deserves it or because it makes me feel good to act like this or even that they like me or are my friend. It's because the other person needs it and I could give it. This is why Jesus can say we can even love our enemies. We don't have to like the person that we invest in, but they need it and we give. And the richness of this love comes not from a grudging duty, but out of a character of spirit. His great love for us arises from God's richness, his integrity, his consistency. He gives to us. He makes the way for forgiveness. He makes us alive simply because that's what's best for us. And that's how he thinks. Next slide, please. I don't know if you can see this too clearly. This is Jesus in the garden. Okay? Maybe with that hint you can work out shapes. And this is the thing. The odd thing I've learned about this love is that people showing agape love seldom smile at all. I've found that agape love is often doing the hard things. But I do them because I choose to in spite of my own comfort level, 
because the other person needs and will benefit. So I've found that sometimes agape love will bring a very similar grimacing expression to our faces. I need to keep reminding myself that agape may not be a happy, smiley face kind of love at all. And it wasn't for Jesus in the garden. If I want the smiling, then maybe I'm drifting it back into a transactional, eros sort of love. Okay, God, I'll do this for you, but you owe me. Because of his great love for us, is not an emotional love. It cost our father a cross and the death of someone special to him. And he chose to invest in us so we could discover new life and hope. What a masterful and mature thing for God to do for us. No wonder Paul calls us. In the reading Bindi gave, it was God's handiwork. But other translations have it, his masterpiece. The masterpiece of God's handiwork. God invested in us, brought us to life, continues to invest in us with his ongoing presence in our lives. How can we be anything else but a masterpiece? Are you with me? But it doesn't end there. New life we have isn't something just self-centred. It's not just to make us feel good. It's about being made alive to in turn invest in others. God's agape love for you, me and others is the basis of our transformation. The Father did what he did, the Son did what he did, the Spirit continues to do what he does in our lives because at every point God sees our need and invests in us. Understanding that naturally helps us Focus agape on the people around us. Jesus was asked one time, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, Agape, the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, said Jesus. Agape your neighbour as you agape yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Wow. All the law, all the commandments, all the rules, all the standards are simply expressed in agapaying God and loving people as we agape ourselves. Do you want to know maturity in your faith? Jesus says, agape. Do you want to overcome temptation and disappointment? Jesus says, agape. Do you want to see this church as a light in the Bagara community, Jesus says, agape. And his definition of agape in my life is for God so agaped Gabriel that he gave his one and only son so that Gabriel could believe in him, not perish, and have eternal life. We really need to let this soak in. It's all about his great love for us. That message should infest our thinking. But sometimes we continue to think God does what he does for us because we're being good. 
Do I feel closer today because I had a nice quiet time or actually got to read some Bible today? That's that transactional eros thinking, folks. Inadequate ideas about who God is and how he agapes towards us must lead to inadequate and incomplete understandings of ourselves as Christians. The only answer is to keep reminding myself of the nature of his love and how I will love my neighbour as I love myself. Letting that truth soak in continually, reminding myself is the only way to wash out 28 different definitions of love and focus on the one, the only one that really matters. Does this make sense? That's why Paul encouraged Christians in Rome, don't be conformed to this world, but be continuously, continually transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can determine what God's will is, what is proper, pleasing and perfect. We need to renew our minds with the truth of agape. Inadequate ideas about God's love will lead to frustration. But sitting with how God loved us first can only lead to a growing awareness of how he's investing in each one of us, in me, every day. Even in the New Testament, we can so easily see how, it is, how we can mix up these ideas for what God calls us and has given us versus what we can think and expect. John tells us that Jesus was talking to Peter and asked him, Simon, son of John, do you agape me more than these? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I filia you. Jesus told him, feed my lambs. Then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I filia you. Twice Jesus asked for agape, twice Peter promised brotherly affection. If Peter wrestled with understanding agape, walking behind Jesus, then it's inevitable that we will also struggle with our ideas of his great love for us. So let's renew our minds and let God's love soak in. It is such a great love. The passage Paul wrote to the Corinthians about love, while often repeated at weddings, is more importantly a picture of how God's great love is towards us. Of course, it's all about agape love. And maybe we need to renew our minds on how he first and always continues to love us in these ways. As Paul wrote, our Father's love is always patient. His love is always kind. His love is never jealous or self-centred or proud. He never gets annoyed with us or in any way glad with our sin. God's love is always about truth. His love bears under everything, believes the best in all of us and will never fail. Agape never fails. It is our need and his investing. Whether we become glow-in-the-dark saints or struggle through life, holding on for all we're worth, 
just to hold on to our hope for Jesus. He keeps investing in us day in, day out. So be transformed, my brothers and sisters, in our thinking, in our expectations, because his love for us is so great. Amen.